This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, This week, we're going to close out our Pride flashback series with Far From Heaven. We're going to talk about some rumors about what might happen with the Emmys as a potential actor strike looms and look a bit at the box office. But we're going to start by getting into the newly announced theatrical requirements from the Academy. And joining us to talk about that once again is the founder and CEO of The Blacklist, Vanity Fair contributor, my Oscar night red carpet co-host, Franklin Leonard. Hello again. Hello. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Um, I mean, we like having you back anytime there's some uh, tangled Hollywood saga to explain. And this time it's about the Oscars. Um, And you happen to have a Twitter thread that I guess you posted in March when the rumor first came out that the Academy was considering somewhat stricter new theatrical requirements for being eligible for Best Picture. Um, They're now out now. They're maybe a little less strict than what we anticipated in March. But I think what you pointed out in your Twitter thread still stands. Um, Would you mind just kind of like summing up the concerns you saw um, in what they're trying to do here? Yeah, I, I guess my biggest concern, and, and to be clear, it's not a concern about the thrust of the thing. I am very pro-theatrical environment. I'm very pro-supporting theaters. I, I guess I just don't know that this rule is constructed to accomplish that, and it has more negative effects, in my opinion, than it does positive. I mean, the the, the root issue for me is that if, if best picture is meant to be best picture, let's let it be best picture and have it be voted amongst the members of the Academy. What the new rule does is say that best picture is now really best picture with an asterisk, is best picture that managed to get the additional resources necessary to get the one week theatrical run and then another week in 10 of the top 50 markets or two international markets in the top 15 and eight of the other top 50 uh, markets. And, you know, look, obviously the traditional studios will be able to accomplish this quite simply. It is their inherent business model. Netflix, Amazon, Apple will be able to accomplish this relatively cheaply vis-a-vis their budgets because they have the money to do so. But if you're a smaller distributor or if you're a new distributor that may not have that distribution uh, heft, uh, you're not only can you not have a shot of winning Best Picture, you can't even be qualified. And it has a sort of ripple effect that if a filmmaker is going to sell their film out of a major festival and negotiate with a distributor, if you think your film may merit a best picture run, you then have to ask for additional resources, which are going to then negatively affect the sort of financial upside for you when you negotiate with the studio, because you're demanding that they put the film out theatrically when it would be cheaper for them to put it out streaming. I think the thing that for us, even who follow Hollywood and the awards a lot, that's hard to understand that you can see much better is what the financial burden is of these theatrical releases of like of what risk a distributor is taking where in your Twitter thread example, it was like you played at Sundance, you did great, you know, say it's everything everywhere all at once. And it played at South by Southwest and was a huge hit and didn't already have a theatrical release planned. How big of a gamble is it for these studios? How unwilling are they to try to put something in theaters at this point? Is it is it a huge risk to take on a smaller indie like that? I don't know that it is, but I also don't... I mean, look, it depends on the size of the balance sheet. It depends on the size of the distributor, right, fundamentally. I, I, the, I, I tend to test policy changes in the extreme 
So it's it's not difficult to imagine that someone cobbles together the resources to make a movie. And let's say the movie is a banger, right? And for whatever reason, they play a festival and they get an offer that they decide they want to self-distribute it, right? Let's imagine an individual filmmaker now having to figure out putting their film in 10 of the top 50 markets theatrically, as opposed to just putting it up online. Whether the movie is good or not, hasn't changed based on the way in which it's distributed. And I don't think then that should affect its Academy eligibility. Look, if Academy voters want to say, I individually or a group of us are only going to vote for films that have gotten a certain amount of theatrical distribution, fair play, that is the right of any individual voter. I just think it's dangerous for the Academy to assign requirements that that constrict the eligibility of films for what is ostensibly an award celebrating art, not an award celebrating art plus distribution channels. Or art and commerce, which is maybe what what it's sort of been all along. I, I also just think that as a policy, it's fundamentally protectionist. It is designed to force filmmakers to distribute with the most resource sort of uh, rich distributors, as opposed to taking the risk of going with smaller distributors, self-distributing or whatever else. And I think that's relatively antithetical to what I personally think the Academy should should be doing, which is to celebrate all film. Um, I also think there's a danger. And again, it hasn't happened yet, but it's not difficult to imagine a film um, you know, being acquired or being made with an intent to distribute it theatrically, the movie comes out theatrically, and all of a sudden the audience says, oh my God, this is amazing. Academy members say, oh my God, this is amazing. But guess what? You went to streaming first, you didn't have an exclusive theatrical window, and now you're completely out of luck. I also think it's interesting that you know, this is sort of very narrowly scoped to best picture. If the goal was, look, we need to support theaters and all films should be going to th- theatrical distribution, you would expect them to say, well, to be a film that is eligible for any Academy Award, it should be theatrical. But it seems pretty clear to me that the reason why it was scoped so narrowly to Best Picture is that Best Picture is the one that, you know, the CEOs of Netflix and Apple and Amazon care most about as opposed to other Oscars. And they didn't want to sort of face the 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 risk of, you know, incurring the negative sentiment of every other branch in the Academy by saying, well, actors aren't eligible unless they meet this standard. Writers aren't eligible unless they meet this standard. It, it is, you know, extremely narrowly scoped. Um, I also just think that fundamentally there were ways to solve for this problem of smaller distributors. They could have had a carve out based on the side of the distributors. There isn't one. Um, it really just falls into a, like a qui bono, qui malo category for me. And it seems pretty naked that this is Look, we want to support theatrical in some nod, and we want to, to force the the new streamers, the folks who are sort of challenging the traditional distribution model in the most significant way, to, to play by the rules that we established a long time ago. I think the way you explain the deal-making part of this and the way up-and-coming filmmakers may be affected is really smart, Franklin, because I hadn't thought of that until I read your tweet thread. But, you know, as someone who used to cover those deal-makings at a trade, it's totally something they think about when they're deciding between a searchlight or a streamer or, you know, if they have hopes for an awards campaign. So I think that's totally true. I, I, it makes me wonder how Netflix will choose which films they give this to. Because you think about something like Fair Play, which came out of um, Sundance this year when is sort of an up and coming filmmaker. Will they give that enough of a theatrical release or do they have to focus on sort of their auteurs that they need to promise to give these huge releases in order to qualify for the best picture? I mean, I assume anybody selling a film to Netflix this will, if they think that they have a shot at a best picture nomination, this will now be a part of the deal. You know, like you said, I think it'll be a, a pro forma part of the deal for auteurs of a certain level who people think of as Oscar filmmakers. But I think if you're a filmmaker selling your film to to any of these streaming distributors, there will now be a conversation where they will say, look, we think this is streaming. You'll have to push back and say, well, I think this might have a chance at making a run. So I'd like you to consider as part of this deal uh, a distribution strategy that allows me to be an el- at least best picture eligible. And, you know, I think any streamer, any company is well within their rights to say, well, that, that costs us a little bit more money. So maybe we're not going to give you as much money as part of this deal. Um, I also think that like, look, if you just look at the numbers, streaming, UCLA did a study and found that streaming films are a lot more diverse than 
theatrical films, right? And it's because there's more of a economic uh, cost of putting things in theaters than it is in streaming. And people wrongly believe that there's greater risk in diverse films than there is in, in, um, in non quote unquote non-diverse films. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the people who are going to bear most of the negative consequence of this rule are the folks who already have a hard enough time getting movies made, getting the resources to distribute them. And this just makes it even more challenging, which, again, I think should be at least antithetical to the goals of the Academy. One piece of the you know best picture scope that stood out to me was something we in this podcast had talked a little bit about when this was first floated, which was the position that international contenders would be put in yeah. um, because the rollout of a lot of films that are not made here is very different uh, in an awards context versus American films. Worst person in the world, for instance, came out in February under these new rules would not be eligible for best picture. Like from, from your perspective, how do you see that side of, of film being impacted by this? Because obviously for a lot of successful international films an awards campaigns, a really important part of it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think films will still be able to be nominated for Best Foreign Language Feature. They'll still be able to be nominated for all these other things. But yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it feels uncomfortable that just as a lot of foreign films are starting to pop up in the Best Picture yeah. nominated category, we start to talk about documentaries as being theoretically nominated in the Best Picture category. All of a sudden, we've instituted rules that make it more difficult for film just to be eligible. Not not to win, by the way, to be eligible. And I think that to be eligible, you should need to be a movie. Not a movie with certain distribution resources, just a movie. And again, if people want to vote only for films that were in a certain number of, the of theaters, fair play. I totally respect that impulse. I totally respect the individual belief that a film should play in theaters. I just don't believe that as the organization that represents this industry during a time of massive change, we should be reverting to protectionist policy that sort of, you know, protects legacy stakeholders against those who may be trying to do something different, more ambitious or challenge traditional distribution models separate from the art of the thing that they are distributing. What you said about the diversity of streaming films made me think of the inclusion standards at the Academy that are also taking effect in, as of 2024. So this will be next year's Oscar race, none of the films that are coming out this year. Um, and those standards, actually, I don't know if we've talked about that with you, Franklin, but they seem set up in a way that makes it so that Netflix and Apple can really easily match them just based on a corporate level, like no matter what you're actually putting on screen. Does it feel similar to you in that it's set up so that the, the corporations can kind of make it work and other people might struggle? Uh, it definitely seems... Well, look, I, I've said that the inclusion standards are, are are a nice nod. I do think it's good that the Academy is willing to say this is something that matters, but they have been th those standards were built to be very easy to accomplish. Like, I've, I, I think you'd have to make a real effort as a even moderately sized company to not be able to meet those standards. Um, and I think, and someone can check my math on this, my understanding is, is that if you were to look, for example, at just the last 10 years of, of Best Picture nominees, far more films would not qualify for the theatrical standard than they would based on the inclusion standard, which I think will tell you a lot about where the, like where the Academy's priorities are vis-a-vis -vis their supposed support of, of the theatrical uh, distribution channel versus the, the support of inclusion. So if you're a theatrical cheerleader, if you're, you know, someone at CinemaCon owning a movie theater, like, is this a huge shot in the arm for them? Is this something that the exhibition industry needs? You see Tom Cruise, like, cheerleading this thing. Is that the argument in favor of doing this stronger theatrical push? I mean, if I was a theater owner, I'd be really just focused on the industry making more, better movies that audiences want to see. <laughs> uh, I think that that is probably, you know, the, the Top Gun probably made more money for theaters than this rule change will make for theaters in, in several years. Um, you know, we're not talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, look, but again, I'm a big theatrical fan. I prefer to see movies in theaters. I think the industry and the academy probably should be doing more to support theaters. I just don't think that the design of this rule, A, substantially supports theaters in a way that sort of reflects the the role of the academy. And I think that it, it, it hurts more than it helps. And the folks that it hurts are folks who are already struggling within the ecosystem as it currently exists. And it doesn't account for, you know, future changing business models. 
Um, so it, it feels largely punitive designed to sort of punish the, the traditional streamers. Uh, it may also be a, a response to the Andrea Riseborough campaign situation, I think, on some level. And, um, you know, look, here's the thing. If theatrical was that important, why is it that I, as an Academy member, can vote without ever seeing a single film in theaters? You know, right. like I'll believe in the importance of the theatrical window and that the Academy believes that that theater is vital when theater going is vital to the voting process or or, or somehow like involved in the in, in the, the eligibility to vote, which it is definitely yeah, not. Good point. Yeah, I, I think it this may help sort of independent uh, theater chains like Alamo Drafthouse. I could see getting yeah. a lot more, uh, you know, the streamers that need to place their their movies there because they are in so many markets, but they're not an AMC or or like that. So I, I could see them being excited by this. But I, I think Franklin's really hitting it on the nose about what this does when it especially how you think about documentary sort of has no chance because they're never released uh, in this sort of structure. Well, and, they certainly can be if, you know, yeah. if Netflix or Apple or Warner's has a doc that they think can be best picture qualified, maybe they do spend the extra money on doing it. But again, it, it perverts the entire uh, business model, the negotiations, if that is part of the, the, like the precondition in order to even move in that direction. Yeah, my octopus teacher might have really cleaned up if they'd uh, done a theatrical release on that, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, well, Franklin, thank you for coming out again to explain Hollywood to us. Uh, anything else you're up to lately that people should know about? Uh, I think one thing I'm really excited about, um, Ed Solomon, who wrote Men in Black and Bill and Ted's and a few recent Soderbergh films, uh, recently tweeted that he was going to he was thinking about doing like a Zoom webinar on the craft of screenwriting. And um, I reached out, I slid into the ye old DMs <laughs> and, um, and offered to sort of provide the, the backend infrastructure. And uh, the first of those uh, will be June 29th uh, with Ed and Lena Dunham and Susanna Fogel. Uh, the second will be the following Thursday with Jesse Armstrong, Eric Roth, and uh, Tracy Oliver. Um, and wow, so, and you it's are free. really it's- uh, not... You're not messing around with the talent. You're <laughs> well, <doing that>. yeah, <laughs> I got a credit credit to my team and to Ed for uh, for putting it all together and turning it around literally in two weeks. But but it's it's going to be you know two hours of conversation amongst those folks about the craft of screenwriting. There's an opportunity to ask questions, and it's free. The only cost, uh, the only ticket charge, is that we ask uh, folks who attend to make a donation to one of the WGA strike funds. Uh, so it's it's literally good for everybody. Um, and so, yeah, just check it out. If you go to the Blacklist website or any of the Blacklist social media, uh, you should be able to find information on it there and how to sign up. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, while we're still on the subject of the Oscars, this week the Academy announced this year's recipients of the Governor's Awards. That's the award ceremony held in November. A little bit more insidery, um, but pretty exciting lineup. Rebecca, you want to run us through it? Yeah, I think it's a great group. It's so it's Angela Bassett, Mel Brooks, and Carol Littleton, who is a, a very accomplished editor, and then Michelle Satter, who is the founding senior director of the Sundance Institute, um, is getting the 
Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award. So I, I mean, I think the headline here is Angela Bassett. I feel like I'm still recovering from the, the sting of last season and her not winning um, again. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I finished the sentence. You were not, you were not stating. Um, but I, I'm, I'm haunted by her reaction. Oh God, her face! Like we'll be haunted forever. We'll be talking about that when Richard does his recap in however many years. Oh, we'll also Christ. be doing this podcast, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's really interesting to give it to her. You know, right the year after that has happened. Um, I'm, I'm going to be really curious what she, what she says on stage. I'm glad she's going to have an Oscar on her shelf, you know, but yeah. I, I, I do feel like I wish it was a, you know, an acting win in the traditional sense, but she's a career that deserves to be honored. So I'm excited to see that, especially. I wonder how much that factors into it. You know, we've, we talked about this, I think a couple of years ago with Samuel Jackson, when he won one, you know, the timing is so conspicuous because <laughs> that, that campaign had her as the front runner for so long, like the level of awareness of giving her one right after that, both in terms of the fact that she absolutely deserves it and the feeling that maybe, you know, there was a lot of hope uh, in the industry that she would have won that. But I also think a lot of the buzz around her was for her career accomplishment, which is yeah. exactly yes. what this award is. So I can imagine some you know, more skeptics being like, this is the award she deserved all along, less so for that one performance than for what she has brought to cinema. But it won't be on TV, right? You know, they, they, every year people are like, just put this on television instead of a little clip within the show. And if that, I feel like sometimes they don't even bother with yeah. that. It is it's such a wonderful full event. Their speeches are so good. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to go to every year. So yeah. it would be nice if we could see it on air so everyone could watch it. I mean, God, speaking of speeches, Mel Brooks like knows how to command a stage. He's 97 as of this week. And... um you know, hopefully continues to be going strong to give it what should be a killer speech in November. Funny to um, have Mel Brooks and his Oscar speech with like, oh, and my Hulu show is streaming now because it is <laughs> History of the World Part Two is street. Like, it's just what a career, you know, um, like he's always been a multi hyphenate. He is uh, just knows how to use new mediums. Yeah. I, I'm, I would hope there would at least be some video of Bassett giving a speech, you know, that we could watch on YouTube or something, because like. I think a lot of people would be eager to watch Angela Bassett give an awards, like a big Academy Award speech. Yep. To do the thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> David's just just bringing out all the all the best of last season. Da- David typing into YouTube after the Governor's Award. Angela Bassett does thing to try <laughs> to find the video. Awards. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, let's go to the box office, as I promised, which is not usually a topic on this show. And I don't think we need to talk about The Flash, although you guys can let me know if that's really um, burning on your mind. Um, But Asteroid City is out there making money at a time when I think a lot of people keep trying to say that the the, uh, specialty box office is dead. Um, And I think there's many cases to say it's struggling. Um, Rebecca, you were saying that uh, it's so popular that you were arguing about it over dinner, which is a (laughs) strong indicator of some kind of buzz. I know. It, it feels like a lot of people have heard there's there's strong word of mouth for this film. I think it probably has to do with a, a strong debut at Cannes and then the whole like TikTok Wes Anderson thing that has been happening over the last couple months. But it feels like, yeah, word of mouth is really strong for this one, which is which is pretty impressive. And I think shows in the way it performed this weekend. Is Wes Anderson just in the zeitgeist now? Like, is it is it that Gen Z is all watching the Royal Tenenbaums for the first time and he's on like a swing up or something? It's very interesting timing. There was a stat of like a very large portion of the this opening wide weekend audience being under 35, which for art house movies is very, very unusual post COVID. Um, so I think definitely there is something to that theory something about his aesthetic, about whatever's going on on TikTok, I don't claim to know. Uh, (laughs) I only saw his quote about it. Kind of reaching a new audience for him, which I think is a really great and vital thing for movies like this. It's just in terms of their longevity in in theaters, uh, as we were just talking about with Franklin. These are the kinds of movies that um, have been struggling at the box office quite considerably, and it looks like it's definitely on pace to outgross almost all of those specialty Oscar contenders from last year, just, you know, based on this opening weekend. So Richard, you liked Asteroid City quite a bit, I think. Um, But would you have seen this level of success coming? No, because I've been very gloom and doom about everything that isn't 
like a $400 million movie. Um, so I was checking the box office this morning just to see how bad The Flash did. And then I was like, got like three paragraphs down and I was like, wait a second, is it, it must be a typo, $9 million? Like, that seems like a lot. Um, I think, you know, obviously there are a ton of famous people in Asteroid City. It is counter-programming. I also think, you know, compared to Anderson's last film, The French Dispatch, one movie has the word French in it. The other has asteroid. <laughs> and it is summer. It's summer, season. you know. And like, posters of Tom Hanks all over L.A. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, I think the star quotient certainly helped. Um, I mean, French Dispatch had a lot of famous people, too. But this is like Tom Hanks and Scarlett Johansson. And, you know, it feels a bit higher profile. But it's, it's heartening, you know. And I kind of did a cursory search on Twitter. Not that that's representative of much, but like it seemed like people who had seen it over this past weekend really enjoyed it, which I was happy about because I really liked it. I, I said on one of our Can episodes that it's my favorite of his in a very long time. So yeah, it gives me some small hope, as does like No Hard Feelings, the Jennifer Lawrence raunchy comedy did a little bit better than it was tracking to do, I believe, yeah. you know. Um, we're not going to turn into the town, but we're not doing over and under <laughs> on box office <laughs> predictions. But I believe that Matt Bellany did get that one right. I hope that there is some sort of cultural conversation reflected, not only in the fact that Asteroid City did well, that um, No Hard Feelings did a bit better than expected, but also that The Flash isn't doing well. I don't wish anyone who worked on that movie ill, certainly, but like I just think that... Uh, I wrote something about it for the site last week about comparing Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse and The Flash, one that's been a, a juggernaut of critical acclaim and box office receipts, the other, The Flash, which has not been, that that feels like a turning point. And then sort of just little side stories, footnotes in that larger narrative about superhero films is um, very distinctly non-superhero films um, actually faring somewhat decently at the summer box office. So I don't know, maybe maybe we are living in a, in a shift moment. Um, I, I certainly hope so. Yeah. And Past Lives also, I think, is still slowly expanding and seems to be doing really well with strong word of mouth, too. So that also feels hopeful after last year's sort of sad narrative about indie film. And that one's important because it has had a really traditional platform release. And most movies that have gone that route have not fared well <laughs> over the past few years. And so the fact that, you know, A24 is committed to that model for this movie based on the amazing reviews and that it's actually worked is a sign that that can still work, I think, more selectively than pre-COVID. But um, yeah, it's really good to see. Isn't that what A24 did with The Whale as well? It had a really, really slow platform release. I, I don't pretend to understand anything about The Whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From, but it did really well. I, my, my point being that it made it money. It was, I believe, the biggest uh, success of the year of, of movies that were released that way. Yes. Yeah. So A24 has, um, has a track record here. Yep. Well, I think on next week's show, we're going to do some analysis of these films coming out in the first half of the year that we might be talking about in terms of Oscar. I feel very invested about the notion of Wes Anderson's return to Oscar glory uh, and past lives as well. But I'm just going to put a pin in it and say we'll get more into that next week. Um, so stay tuned. Okay, let's jump back into the Emmys. Emmy voting is over as you hear this. Um, Emmy nominations will be announced on July 12th. When the Emmys will happen after that maybe up for debate. Um, Rebecca, you wrote the Awards Insider newsletter last Friday and um, covered some of the rumors, all rumors so far, that if the actors go on strike in particular or the WGA strike continues, that the Emmys might get moved out of September. Um, it's unclear if that's actually happening, but everyone seems kind of nervous about it, right? Yeah, the, we're, we're talking really early uh, rumor phase here. So I think all of us had a moment of like, oh, my God, the Emmys <laughs> are going to be in November. But I, I feel like we all need to just, you know, wait and see a little bit here. But um, yes, yeah, so the, there has been some reporting that, you know, the team behind the Emmys, both Fox, who's the broadcast partner and um, the TV Academy, are considering having to push the show because this is a show that cannot go on without writers. It's not... You know, they they don't think there's a Tony Awards version or even the BET Awards for this past weekend um, that they can do without writers. And obviously writers are given awards. It just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, there are rumors that it could possibly move to maybe November, maybe early next year, which seems insane to even say out loud. Oh, my um, God. But the same weekend as the SAG Awards, <laughs> just to really keep us on our toes. <laughs> just to blow our heads off. Yeah, so... Um, 
yes, I talked to a few awards strategists about what they thought. No, they haven't heard anything from the TV Academy, so it was all just kind of hypothetical. Um, and I think most are concerned with if this would mean a longer phase two campaigning season, because, you know, these companies have already decided and budgeted where they're spending their money. And if we're suddenly going till November, that changes a lot for them, along with sort of the fatigue of a season that long and talking about shows that aired more than a year ago um, would be really challenging. So there's definitely challenges if this happens, but there's so many questions uh, at this point. Lots of questions. <laughs> we have questions yeah. as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this in the context of the bear airing this weekend to, you know, kind of a rapturous reaction and um, certain actors popping maybe even more than season one. And, you know, to an extent, that's already going to impact the way that season one is voted on, uh, is was just voted on by Emmy voters because they very cannily, intentionally timed at season two Emmy voting for the first season. <laughs> so if you push these awards, you know, two months, four months, the memories of these seasons and these shows will evolve and shift. And I think it makes it much harder to actually accurately vote on the season of television that you're supposed to be voting on. So it, it does impact the award somewhat. And I just wonder, I wonder if there will be anything done to kind of try to ad address that. I, I don't know if you can, but I do think it would be pretty impactful. Um, because if we think about like the Oscars moving there were a lot of movies that were released in January and February, you know, in 2021. And so mm -hmm. it, it was a little bit, it was, it was matched by the shifts in the release calendar. In this case, it's just like all these shows sort of hanging on in some cases, 16 months at this point um, that are relying on memory. And um, that's quite difficult when there's so much television out there. I mean, everything we're saying here is why the WGA has leverage here. I, th I think we've talked about the Emmys maybe not being as much as a, of a lever as the Oscars would be. Um, but they, you know, the studios don't want any of this to happen and might be inclined to strike a deal. Um, so that that is my hope is that us talking about this enough makes me like, oh, my God, please don't let that happen. <laughs> Can we please make a deal with the WGA? Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, the time has come to close the book on our Pride Flashback series for 2023. Once again, a highlight of the year for me. Um, I love getting to do these deep dives into history. In this case, we are, we're sort of not going that far in the past. We're going to 2002, but we're also going to the 50s with Todd Haynes's Far From Heaven. Um, it is... I was reading one one piece that called it like a parody in the most like literal sense of the word, where it's not like making fun of Douglas Sirk melodramas. It is just like an exact replica of them in a way that, um, you know, I think when I first saw this in 2002, didn't really understand to the extent that I do now. Um, it was one of Julianne Moore's two uh, 50s housewife roles uh, <laughs> that it got her at the Oscars, the other one being in the hours. Um, David, you wrote about the hours Oscar campaign last year, far from having being kind of like a sidebar in that story. Um, but I feel like its Oscar trajectory was very vivid in your mind from recently. Um, I wonder how that affected your rewatch of this. This is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, I've seen this oh, movie. Wow, I've seen, I I, I've seen this movie like five times. So, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this is a it's a major movie for me. It's a it's a beautiful, I think, stunning, uh, and like you, like you were saying about the way it plays with Douglas Sirk, the combination of homage and uh, intentionality, and it feeling like its own thing is really tricky to pull off. But it's just so deeply felt and affecting. Um, in terms of its, you know, Oscars positioning from 2003, um, and we'll obviously talk about the movie, my my main feeling about it is that it was just very, very, it was dealt a really bad hand, and it deserved hmm. a ton more uh, than it got. Todd Haynes has never been nominated for Best Picture or Best Director, and this and Carol stand as the really obvious examples of that being a bad thing <laughs> and not correct. And um, I think this one especially, 
deserved to get that kind of embrace and especially for a queer film that was so layered and so intricate um it was a real i think missed opportunity for the academy Richard, you recapped these Oscars, as we talked about um, earlier in the year. We were doing our flashback season. Uh, but did you, had you rewatched Far From Heaven anytime recently? No, no, I hadn't seen it since I was in college. Um, and at the time, was very excited about a big new Julian Moore movie, but didn't really understand what it was doing, you know? I, I mm-hmm. liked it, I guess, but I, I kind of felt a little alienated by it because I figured that there was some sort of artsy meta commentary happening that I was just like, there, that there was a big layer underneath what I was watching that I didn't understand, you know? Um, because you had not seen like 50s melodramas at that point, I assume. Yeah. I also, I also just think like, like it just felt very formalist, you know, there was, some, there was, there was a deliberate sort of academic intent behind it. That's sort of how I had read about it, I think. And, and, and so I felt a little bit like I wasn't getting something, you know? And I think rewatching it now, um, knowing a bit more about what it's doing, but also just, you know, 20 plus years later, I just was like, oh, no, it's just a really well done, engaging, um, thoughtful movie. And any sort of deeper text that I needed to parse or couldn't understand, like, that's in there, of course. I mean, Todd Haynes does not make movies that are single layer, but mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, you can, I, you can just approach it as purely what it is, which is a social issues melodrama with really great performances and beautiful music and beautiful, you know, visual aesthetics and all that. Um, yeah, so it's a lot more accessible, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, than I than I remembered it being, which I guess, you know, given the fact that it was uh, overlooked in b- bigger, some big Academy categories, but did get a, a good handful of nominations, like, you know, the Academy in 2002, the Academy now, really, it was not that often that they were nominating very esoteric, like, um, academic movies, you know, in, in big acting categories and whatnot, screenplay categories. So, yeah, I, I think that if anyone out there felt the same way I did a long time ago, being like, oh, there's something I'm not getting here, revisit it, because it's pretty plain, uh, but, but, you know, but intelligent uh, about what it's doing. It is kind of wildly experimental in a way that I just hadn't clocked into in that way. Like, it is so steeped in the language of the 50s. It is such a throwback. Like, it's not winking at any point. I think something from around the time, or maybe Todd Haynes himself, like, talked about Pleasantville, which had come out a couple years earlier and kind of had the very much, like, you're in the world of the 50s, but it's exploding into color. And I like Pleasantville a lot. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, But it doesn't wink. It doesn't tip its hand outside of the world that it lives in at any point, Um, which is really bold and so hard to pull off Mm -hmm. without feeling alienating. But it's accessible, exactly as you said, Richard. I detected one... I mean, other than Patty Clarkson's character, but other than that, like one little campy wink, um, which is when they're having an awkward dinner with the the, the family, all four of them. And, you know, Dennis Quaid's character is in a bad state. And so is so is Kathy, uh, Julianne Moore's character. Um, And the scene ends with her saying, honey, pass the butter to her daughter. And then that's the last line in the scene. And that felt a little bit like Julianne and Todd when he said cut, they they laughed, (laughs) you know, because it's just like, (laughs) but other than that, you're right, Katie, there is not a wink to it. You know, it's very sincere. I think that its messaging is not meant to be ironic or anything like that. I I think it is quite earnest um, in its uh, pastiche. And, um, you know, it's interesting to think about this movie existing around the same time as Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which was a lot more of a slavish, mm. like, de- deliberate, like, shot-for-shot shot kind of thing. But that sort of mid-century re-estimation at the end and of one century, the beginning of another, like, um, is interesting. And I think that this is a much more successful version of that than was Psycho. Yeah, this movie's in conversation specifically with um, All That Heaven Allows, which I, one time I did rewatch it, rewatch Far From Heaven right after seeing this. And yeah, the ways in which the movie very deliberately evokes that Douglas Sirk film and the ways in which it departs uh, is is really effective. And, you know, the way he maintains the sincerity uh, of the time period and of that style of filmmaking, it almost feels like at times the Sirk movie is a little bit campier. It stars Rock Hudson uh, and it has, I think, maybe two more winks than than, um, mm. than Far From Heaven does, which works in Far From Heaven's favor because you have these incredibly rich performances and this production design that is so stunning and the cinematography that completely thoroughly evokes that period, both of filmmaking and of, of the setting itself. 
um, that it, it, it is able to create its own identity in a really interesting way. I had a similar experience to Richard where watching it this time, I noticed different things or I I felt different ways. I don't. I think that's what makes this this film so special. Is you could watch it as David has five times and sort of experience it differently each time, depending on where you are and where you're, you know what your perspective is. And I don't know if you had this experience, Richard, but it, I couldn't help but compare it to uh, May December, which we both saw in Cannes, and obviously it's mm. Todd Haynes and Julian Moore, Blonde again. So that film is much campier and and has many more winks, but. Um, it was interesting to sort of watch this so soon after seeing May, December. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think that's ultimately why I su- suggested it for this, because I knew that Haynes would be, you know, sort of in the, the film conversation uh, around this time. And I think what I love about these two films standing next to each other and, and thinking about Haynes's broader oeuvre, I mean, there are a couple outliers, certainly the Bob Dylan movie, um, Dark Waters, Um Oh, or a bit different dark waters sorry but um <laughs> but like th- i love that todd haynes is like true to a certain queer sensibility in his work that can be played earnestly it can mm-hmm. be you know as in far from heaven it can be played with you know a bit more of a joke like in may december although there's plenty of earnestness in may december that he just like he's interested in the tones and styles that he's interested in. They come from, I think, a, a very queer place from someone born when he was, um, and that he keeps kind of noodling with that and, and 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 approaching it from different angles and and staying true to that, you know. And I think Carol obviously fits in that lineage very well too. And uh, you know, he just his films vary a lot, and yet he does have a sort of signature something. And I think Far From Heaven is maybe one of the best examples of of what Haynes is doing and, and how he is bringing a somewhat narrower, smaller, cloistered world, uh, or at least it certainly was decades ago, of, of kind of queer art to a mainstream audience and being like, there's a lot of value here for every viewer. I don't know if there's a concise way to explain Far From Heaven as a queer film specifically as what you called it earlier, David, because obviously there's the Dennis Quaid character. That's a really important subplot to the movie. But I, I believe you mean it more broadly than that. And I kind of want you to explain it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right? Take me to grad school. Grad school thesis paper coming um, at us. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, we should start by sort of outlining that Dennis Quaid does play the husband to Julianne Moore. The character is closeted and the film unfurls that dynamic. Um, But more broadly, I think it goes to what Richard was saying. And this movie has a little bit of everything in terms of how Todd Haynes makes a movie and how he is really so in touch with his sensibility as a queer filmmaker that there's the potential for it to be earnest. And obviously the legacy of these kinds of leading ladies in these movies has been reclaimed to an extent in in queer studies and culture. Um, But then you also have, on the other hand, a character like Patricia Clarkson's Eleanor, who is kind of campy and kind of fun. And she she takes you to a different dimension for this kind of movie. Obviously, this character, a very similar kind of character actually exists in All That Heaven Allows. But in this movie, it's cranked up just a little bit so you can detect the playfulness of the filmmaking of the performance uh, in a way that I think there's a more immediate communication there. Hmm. Um, And then it's just the themes. I mean, really this is a film in many ways about the relationship between her and um, Dennis Haysbert's character, who we should talk more about Mm -hmm. um, Raymond Deegan, who is the son uh, of her gardener who's passed away and he's taking over his father's jobs essentially And the relationship between them is, again, so sincerely wrought in the movie. And the the chemistry between her and Haysbert is so beautiful that you get this kind of tapestry of of difference um, in this setting that is definitely done through a modern lens, even as the movie is incredibly steeped in its period. And in all that, and understanding the filmmaker's perspective, I think you get pretty queer movie. I don't know how I did, but that's <laughs> that's my attempt to to outline it. 
Richard, you can probably do it better than me, though. No, no, I can't. Um, I kept thinking, oddly enough, I mean, maybe not, not that oddly, while rewatching it, um, about Cola Scola, the actor comedian. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, who yes, yes. They're they're just. I mean, they're one of they're one of the great minds of their generation, our generation. Um, and during the pandemic, made a kind of a film a series of sketches uh just from their living room um and with you know a lot of references to sort of mid-century cinema Mm -hmm. and whatever and like there's just um a a certain niche let's say of gay men uh as evidenced by characters played on snatch game on rupaul's drag race but by a fandom for real housewives that uh is interested in for understandable cultural reasons vast ones in the sort of women in trouble art, you know, uh, mm-hmm. movies, TV shows, um, that I think has been a bit, now that there is more like literal on screen gay representation, I guess maybe sort of people don't have to search I- into other things to kind of find themselves, I guess. But I-, I think movies like this honor that tradition as does, you know, more recently, Cole's work and other people's work. And um, it's it's nice to see that sort of cultural dialogue continuing and to revisit this one 21 years later. Yeah. You can also compare this movie in an interesting way to Carol for obvious reasons, but also because Carol centers a queer relationship. Whereas in this one, a lot of the queer text is in the rendering of this character who is not gay, um, but who... Yeah, exists very much in that conversation and the the legacy of the the fifties housewife character in films like this, melodramas who have been adopted <laughs> to some extent. Um, so go back to Dennis Haysbert, as we were saying we were going to earlier. Um, he, you know, he played the president on Twenty Four Forever. He's had a thriving career, but like the the beauty of this role and like the quietness and the way that he like commands the screen it made me wish we'd been seeing more of him mm-hmm. all these years i think i had really underestimated the power of that performance um in in how i remembered this movie that like chemistry between them like you were saying like it is so unspoken i'm such a sucker for like two people looking at each other and all the things they can't say and like the, there's so many scenes of that in this movie and and the politeness of the era you know mr this miss that you know like like oh we you know they always sort of managed to say the right thing you know the tactful thing the delicate thing um and yet of course underneath that is so much turmoil i i read a couple things uh about the movie a couple days ago about how it's kind of a fairy tale haunted wood kind of movie where like everything is beautiful but dark things are happening and sinister things and i think that we can talk about the movie uh as a queer film but obviously it's arguably it's bigger component is this um this racial animus that is experienced by these two characters. And um, I know that there has been some pushback against that aspect of the movie, people taking issue with equating issues of gay oppression with, with racial oppression. And and because those are different things that function very differently, obviously there can be intersections between the two, but, but I think that in what it's narrowly trying to do in this movie, I think it's, I found it to be sensitive. I mean, I know that I'm not maybe the, the ideal arbiter of that, but like, I think that Haysbert's performance and his the way his character is written are, even though he's not in that many scenes, are like fully fleshed out and thorough. And I and I, I wish maybe the movie had time to focus a bit more on him, but I th- maybe that's not the sort of the project of the film. But you know, the scene in the art gallery for one is just like so exquisite, and I think gives such um, shorthand, but but full uh, such a shorthand picture of who this guy is. So to jump to the Oscars, uh, for, Far From Heaven gets four Oscar nominations. Let me see if I can do off the top of my head for Julianne Moore, for um, Todd Haynes' original screenplay, for cinematography and score, um, all of which are incredibly deserved. Um, the fact that Todd Haynes loses to Pedro Almodovar is kind of cruel. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone's going to take away Pedro Almodovar's Oscar, um, but these two like gay film icons being up against each other, just uh, why couldn't it have happened another way? Yeah, I mean, the the win for, I think we talked about it a little bit last year, but that win was very much motivated by the fact that Spain did not select the movie for submission. And a, a real campaign emerged around Talk to Her and, and the chance to get him a big standalone win. So yeah, it did come at the expense of this movie, although that's it's it's an interesting category. You have multiple non-English language films. You have also Itzumama Tambien. And you have my big... F- fat greek wedding 
and Gangs of New York, which I don't think is much of a screenplay movie. So it's it's a really strange group overall. It's kind of wild that my big fat Greek wedding didn't win, honestly. That movie yeah. was huge. That's like a classic original screenplay winner. Yeah, I mean, th- it, this is an interesting year that I actually, I probably should have focused more on this in the, in the recap that I did a few months ago. But between Chicago and The Hours and Far From Heaven and Talk to Her, and honestly, Diane Lane and Unfaithful, this is kind of a gay Oscars mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in a way that, um, you know, Nicole Kidman and The Hours winning, that that fits the bill. Brody for The Pianist, not so much. Um, but um, yeah, it, this, it just, it happened to come out this one year where it had so much competition that was probably attracting the same voters. You know, like I think a lot of Chicago voters were also, were also far from heaven people, were also ours people, and um, and also talked to her people. And um, yeah, there was just no room. And I think that Haynes, uh, being a kind of continually overlooked person at the Academy Awards, um, this was really the beginning of, of that narrative continued with Carol. And I don't know, isn't there a sort of an irony that like Cirque was kind of... Uh, relegated to just being like, oh, he makes women's pictures and they do well, but we, you know, critics, eh, you know, and then obviously he had a huge reconsideration just a couple yeah. decades um, after the fifties. And I don't know, maybe there's a parallel there in, in some way where like Haynes, um, the actresses get nominated and the beautiful production stuff gets nominated, but he is not making maybe in people's minds a serious enough movie to merit the big, big prizes. Mm. Yeah. I think that's been trailing him for a long time. Because he's gay. I mean, let's just say it. Like, mm-hmm. Because he makes gay movies and uh, they are not um, the kind of thing that uh, that the Academy has historically gone for. Yeah. Given the level of acclaim that Carol got, the amount of nominations it got outside of Best Picture, it's pretty, it remains pretty wild to me it did not make an expanded lineup. I mean, it's happened again and again with his films. Uh, I don't know that May-December, I haven't seen it yet. It doesn't feel like the kind of movie that's a slam dunk Best Picture nominee. Um, so it, it does feel like that conversation is going to wrap around again. And given that Return of the King was going to win finally best picture for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, like just don't even don't nominate two towers. Like it doesn't need to be there. Like it, it's, it's going to be fine. It's the better of the two between the, of the second and third movies. But like, you know, that just felt like such a gimme slot and, and far from heaven was, was a distinct singular thing of that year rather than a, a midway sequel. I did not expect you to come for the two towers. No, I like the two <laughs> towers. Orlando Bloom surfs on a shield, much like our friend Link from Zelda. Um, but yeah. I, I felt this a bit when I covered it with the hours last year, but it's a bit of a dutiful best picture lineup. You know, Gangs of New York, it was it was so heavily pushed via Weinstein as the, the Scorsese movie that would get him the director win, but it was not a movie that was particularly well-liked um, by the Academy. Um, the Hours was another very heavily pushed, heavily marketed movie that didn't do very well at the box office. I like that movie a lot, but it, it was definitely another engineered Best Picture nominee, and, and I agree with Richard about The Lord of the Rings. So there was some room to play there. Um, my my favorite sort of uh, strategy trivia about this season as it pertains to Far From Heaven is the way all of the Hours actresses kind of had to navigate <laughs> having multiple roles. The reason mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman was the lead acting nominee was because Meryl Streep had a stronger supporting role in Adaptation, which she was nominated for. She won the Golden Globe. She was considered competitive there. And Julian Moore had the most screen time in the hours, but went supporting because she had Far From Heaven. And so they all were kind of bopping around. And then the hours also had people like Tony Collette, who had a big year, who was campaigning. And yet, on the supporting actor side... I think it's a bummer you didn't get Dennis Quaid or Dennis Haysbert. From what I understand, even that much of a run here. I, I think Quaid got a Golden Globe nomination, but wasn't considered very likely to hit that five. Quaid is so good in it. He's so and, good. And, you know, really just good. as easily found on the uh, as on the Wikipedia page, like, he wanted it to be James Gandolfini, but he had scheduling conflicts with Sopranos. Uh, Russell Crowe thought the part would was... Be Fascinating, fascinating. In this movie. totally fascinating. And then I guess Russell Crowe was considered, but he didn't like how small the part was relative to Julian Moore's character. <laughs> and then sure. uh, J- Jeff Bridges was too expensive. I mean, we're basically quoting a little paragraph on Wikipedia. But um, and then uh, yeah, I guess eventually that that brought it to Quaid, who like you know is known to be one of the more conservative people in Hollywood. Not not like John Voight style, but like he's you know it's interesting that he like chose this role at the time he did. 
and um, and I think he really nails it. And he's perfect. I mean, it's funny that they, that he was maybe the fourth in line because he's perfectly cast. I think like yeah. he's 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 really good at that sort of like um, you know wealthy white guy squirm. You know, like that the mm. sort of like. I, everything seems good, but actually, I'm like a, a storm of secrets just underneath yeah. the surface. Like he's he's good at that in traffic and other things. Like, yeah, I think I think he works really really well, and his breakdown scene is a very effective. Even though you still do leave the movie resenting Frank, despite I guess sympathizing with his struggles. You think he and that young guy in the motel are gonna make it? They're gonna have a happy life together. I don't, I don't have a lot of faith in that relationship, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, I mean... He'll be happier living in his truth. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> with, with the kid he lived on, on vacation. Yeah, maybe they move out of that motel and into a real apartment at least. I mean, I, I guess the, the, the cheesier, more heart-swelling ending of this movie is that like he moves to New York with his new young lover and then Kathy and her beau moved to New York and the, the kids become bohemians in the city and that's how the movie ends. <laughs> but uh, that wasn't that wasn't meant to be. Oh, but that branch with the cherry blossoms at the mm-hmm. end, like, well, how much more perfect an ending could you ask for? Yeah. 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 Can I ask a sort of spiky question that I was thinking about while I watched this? And I, I think Todd Haynes gives actors just incredible performances and I know there's a rumor he's going to do a Joaquin Phoenix movie where Joaquin is playing a gay character. And do you ever feel like you wish as a gay director he was casting more gay actors in these roles? Or does that not hmm. bother anyone? I think in this case, that that isn't an issue because it sort of works for both the story that this guy is very straight presenting, you know, because he's been trained to be. Um, But also, it's a kind of a meta comment on like how casting happened in the old days, you know, like, like you had your Rock Hudson's and your Tab Hunters um, and others floating around. But like, yeah, I think the sort of offness of Quaid in that role is kind of what makes it work. But yeah, in general, I think you look at something like Carol, and there's like one... Well, I guess there are two out gay actors, Sarah Paulson and um, Corey Michael Smith, but they're in smaller parts, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Todd Haynes is probably even more constrained by certain matters of finance than would be a bigger director, you know. Like, I think it's still hard for Todd Haynes' movies to get funded, you know. And so, unfortunately, the economics of, like, trying to find one of the few bankable, quote-unquote, out gay actors, I mean, that's really hard at this point. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I remember talking to Kate Blanchett a little bit about that last year, and she it does it, only. I only bring that up because it does feel like he's been uniquely equipped to, for lack of a better way of putting it, get away with it, <laughs> because Carol is so beloved by the queer community, and Kate Blanchett has again been sort of adopted into, particularly among um, lesbian fans of that movie, uh, their entire. Instagram accounts dedicated to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> memories. David, do you want to give us your at? <laughs> I believe it's at Dyke Blanchett. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah. I hope I'm you're not making a lot of say, money off I'm of not, that, David. I'm not going to say my, my level of involvement in it, but... <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... I think coming out of th- this movie again and knowing that he is making that movie. You mentioned Rebecca. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've talked about it. This is an issue I, I feel pretty strongly about. I, I would like to see just what that would look like, because um, I haven't seen that yet. But I, I agree with Richard in Far From Heaven. I think Dennis Quaid gives such a beautiful performance. And honestly, those actors you mentioned who passed or couldn't do it for various reasons, I think probably would have gotten nominated because the narratives were, would align better. I don't think he was taken seriously enough Um, or maybe just at that moment where he could have pushed through, but um, I think he should have. He should have cast a closeted gay actor who could then come out on the Mm -hmm. award circuit. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would have been it. See, that's why we need you writing an Oscar campaign. Although maybe (laughs) maybe he needed to wait a few years because there needed to be Twitter or something to spread that news. It might have been tough. Yeah, people uh, like dialing into their DSLs and (laughs) trying to read about (laughs) someone coming out, you know. That does it for this week's show. Um, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Hold up. 
Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the reason we never talk about the Little Gold Men fan fiction out there goes to David Canfield. There are entire Instagram accounts dedicated to that. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 